0: Church family, if you have your Bibles with you, if you want to open to the book again of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, as we've been going through over these past few weeks through our Vintage Faith series, I just want to say, sometimes I don't say this enough, ECC family, it is a privilege to have the honor to be able to preach here on a Sunday. I don't take it lightly. The responsibility and the honor that God gives me in my life that I get the opportunity to on Sundays preach to you. I don't take that lightly. As I share this morning, as I've been praying, my prayer is that you won't simply hear my words or my wisdom because I really don't have a lot. But I pray that for you and for me, that God's word would come to life in us. God's word brings life. If you read your Bible and you don't get life from it, invite the Holy Spirit to make it alive in you because it will change your life. It's the only thing that will. And there will literally never, ever be anything that I say on my own that can really change you or change your life or change how you are facing the circumstances that you face. But God's word in a moment can. So this morning, again, we're going to turn to God's word in 2 Peter chapter 1. It says this for this very reason make every effort to add to your faith and as we've been studying add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control as was discussed last week perseverance and to perseverance godliness this morning we want to focus on this word godliness what does that mean? What does it mean to be godly? Perhaps in our minds there's a variety of answers that come up. Maybe there's pictures or there's people or there's kind of mystiques to you that are what godliness is. But I want us to actually fully and really clearly define what this is, because we are supposed to have it added to our faith. Webster's Dictionary defines godliness as divine or pious or devout. The word that's used here in Second Peter is the word that I'm about to butcher and pretend like I actually know how to do Greek, but it's eusebia, which means a reverence, respect, or piety towards God. This can sometimes, godliness here can sometimes be translated as holiness or mean good devotion or genuine devoutness. What it describes is the inward quality of a heart that is set completely on God, His kingdom, and His purposes. In short, to be godly, to add godliness to your faith, is to be God-centered. It is to have a character that reflects God. And how do we reflect God? We look to the one who most clearly represents Him, His Son, Jesus. To be godly is to reflect Christ. So I want us to flesh this out a little bit of what this is this morning. In 1 Peter 3, we see this. 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So we wanted to kind of define a little more of what does godliness actually mean. Beyond just the definition, what does it actually look at like? I want us to look at these two passages I'm going to read through. and The first here is 1 Peter 3. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. As Christ followers, the hope that we have is eternal life with God our Father, reunited with Him through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. Always to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed for their slander. Two things I want to point out here that I want to pull from this passage as we hopefully it will more roundedly and more clearly define what it means to have godliness in your life and in my life the first thing we see here in 1st peter 3 is in your hearts revere christ as lord revere or set apart christ exalt him above christ christ as lord not self as lord not any other person Not my mom, not my dad, not my favorite professor, not the guy that I look up to, not my favorite athlete, not the favorite celebrity I love or the person I want to be like. Revere Christ, set apart Christ as Lord, as a leader, as the one I present myself subservient to. Godliness begins with this resolve of the heart. Key and pivotal is what do you and I do with Jesus? Is Jesus Lord in your life? Is Jesus telling you what's what? In your day-to-day, every day, walking down the street, going to work, cooking, cleaning, sleeping, is Jesus Lord? Who takes priority? It's an old saying that I used to hear all the time when I was a kid, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. There's some truth to it. Who you hang around with are going to have influence on who you are and the decisions that you make. But even more important than that is show me your God and I will show you who you will become. Who is God in your life? If you are your own God, you'll continue to look exactly the same as you always have. Because you will reflect who your God is. And that same selfish you that you look on in your past and go, oh, I've so moved on and grown from that, you really haven't if you continue to be God in your life. You'll continue just to look like the same old selfish you. Don't expect to ever change or become better. Because the one that you've put as Lord is still the same. If you watch any commercials on TV, they're always advertising how products will make the better you. It's all about being the better you. Christ's call on your life, Jesus' desire for you is the better you. Godliness is putting Christ in the proper position in your life so that you can become like him, so that you can truly become the better you that you are called and know inside you want to be. So first is revere or set apart Christ as Lord. Secondly, from this passage in 1 Peter, we see that godliness should bring a change of behavior. As we read on in this passage, it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer for this hope. In here, We see two things. We see an implicit change of behavior and an explicit change of behavior. Implicitly, godly people live in a way that they arouse curiosity in others. See, when you truly are a godly person, you live different than the rest of the world. Hope is actually not something you just speak of. It's not something that's part of your political campaign. But hope is something that you have every day in spite of circumstances. And if you truly live as a person who has hope, you stand out in this world. And implicitly, there's something different about you because it causes others to ask the question, why? You live in a way that makes people ask, why do you have that? In situations where others would only worry and fear, those who are rooted in Christ can offer hope. Now, Hear me clearly, not that you don't struggle, not that you don't have problems, and not that you also don't have times of doubt, times of anguish, absolutely not. But we live and offer hope to the world. And with that, there is an explicit change of behavior. Godly people are always ready to tell anyone the reason for their hope. You know, one of the things that gets me oftentimes in the church today is it's very popular in our world to be people who want to make social change and try to make positive changes in a world. That's a very popular thing to do. But your good works, what is it about your good works that you want people to see? What's the point of them? Is it so that people see that you are a good person? As a church, what's the point of us being those who have good works in our neighborhood of Beaumont? Is it so that people see us as being great people? If that's the core and the heart of it, we've missed it. Key to anything that I do, any any task of generosity, any caring act that I have, is I do it because Christ first loved me. And in that, there is a hope inside of me that I want others to have. I do not need to be seen. We live in a world that constantly it's about I do good works so that I am known and seen as good. You and I don't need to be seen as good. Jesus needs to be known and experienced as good. Because when you experience the goodness of God, that changes your life. That transforms you. And godly people are always prepared to give a reason for the hope that they have. Jesus should not be a word that we're afraid to speak on our tongue. The name of Jesus should be something that easily flows out of our life because he is our life. And perhaps you're like me and you need to be reminded of this because we live in a culture and a world that likes to shove Jesus in the corner. But for those who are truly living a godly life, Jesus is center. Again, in your Bibles, I'm going to flip to another passage as we kind of more fully define what this word godliness means. Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me. So from 1 Peter 3, just to review, we had uh, Godliness reveres or sets apart Christ as Lord, and with that it brings a change of behavior. In 1 Timothy three sixteen we kind of define, again, more of what godliness is. Godliness is reflecting Jesus. And so in that, if we want to be godly, we need to evaluate Jesus. 1 Timothy three sixteen reads this. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. What is this mystery that he's speaking of? Paul goes on to define it he talks about Jesus himself. Jesus appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Borrowing this uh, this breakdown of this passage from Mark Buchanan's book, Hidden in Plain Sight, that we've referenced lots in this series. But I think he does a great job of helping break this down As Paul states that godliness is about the mystery of Christ. Godliness is only truly found through the intimate relationship with Jesus. Because he is the very source and definition of godliness. So with that, from this passage in 1 Timothy 3.16, we see this. Godliness is setting your sights first on Christ. Jesus appeared in the body, as it says there in verse 16. We see and celebrate this always at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. Those who are godly sense God's nearness. That God is not simply a distant being, but that God is near. Secondly, God was vindicated in the Spirit. The godly do not exhaust themselves trying to manage what others think about them. Jesus did not concern himself with the opinions of the religious elite nor the non-religious of his day. He was about doing his Father's work and he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. For those who are godly, we do not care about the opinions of others. And We live in a world that loves to say, I don't care what anybody else's opinion is. Let's be honest, the majority of our actions show that we do. But those who are godly can deal with difficult circumstances, can deal with difficult people because our weight, our value, our worth is not on what the opinions of those around us are, but rather it's what God's opinion is. Thirdly, we see from this passage that Jesus was seen by Angels. The godly are aware that there is a spiritual realm. As we read in in Ephesians, we recognize that even when we are persecuted by those around us, it's not a matter of flesh and blood. We are not at war against those who are around us who don't think the same way as us. We recognize that there is a spiritual war that is going on. He was preached forthly among the nations. The godly have impact globally. Globally. And we are able to actually truly serve better because the selfish desires that oftentimes are behind our generous acts are taken away. And when, our, when your motivation truly is about the kingdom of God, there is so much more that you are willing to do. And so much more that you are willing to go without. Jesus was believed on in the world. And the godly changed the world they live in. They changed the way the people see the world around them, the way they see God, the the things that they believe and the values that they have. And finally, Jesus was taken up in glory. And those who are godly live in light of not just what is temporary, but live in light of eternity. Godliness is putting Christ at the proper position of leader of your life. Godliness comes from intimacy with Jesus, knowing Him and being changed by that relationship. So I ask you, The same question I ask myself today. Are you different today than you were before you knew God? Or if you don't know God yet, does your life in any way reflect godliness? In trying to broaden this out a little further, I always find that when you try to define and understand a concept, if you get the antithesis or the opposite of it, you can actually get an even greater grasp. So with that, I want us to spend a little bit of time this morning getting the antithesis of godliness, what godliness is not, and what keeps you from it. When you think of the opposite of godliness, what comes to mind to you? Any pictures? Don't say names of people. We know if you've been in church, you've heard this. And if you're new to church, I'm so glad that you're here. In the Bible, it tells us that God created the world. And in that, it describes God as perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing. What would be the opposite of that? Perhaps to you, well the opposite would be humanity, it'd be imperfection, it'd be the wrong, it'd be people who aren't perfect. This is not the antithesis of godliness. The opposite or antithesis to godliness is not frailty or humanity. But rather the greatest hurdle to godliness is our own self-serving pursuits of rightness. Or what's called worldliness. Worldliness is, in a word, selfishness. If godliness is God-centeredness, worldliness is self-centeredness. Whatever makes sin look more attractive than what God is. If we go back to the very beginning of creation, in the book of Genesis, we see how God created mankind after himself. He created the earth. He created the skies. He created the land, the fish, the seas, all these things. But he created mankind after himself. And he gave the world to mankind. First Adam, then created Eve. He said, this is yours to govern. It's all yours. But he gave one caveat with that. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to not touch it, to not eat from it. We see in Genesis 3 how Satan, disguised as a serpent, comes and tempts Eve to eat of the uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one tree that God told them not to. Explicitly made it clear, everything else is yours, but do not touch this. Now, if you go to that passage of Scripture, Genesis 3 5, if you want to reference it and check me on these things afterwards, but we see here that, that Eve is not tempted. She's not tempted by the evil of that tree, but rather she is tempted with the promise of what could be good. She was tempted by what, what the serpent said to her If you eat of this, you will be like God yourself see the antithesis of godliness is someone who believes that they themselves on their own are godly this was the very first sin that caused the fall of mankind was eve buying into the fact that i could be like god myself i wouldn't need him If your goal in life is to somehow attain godliness, and so you rigorously discipline your life to uphold religious or moral ideals, you've got it all backwards. If you correlate godliness with the human pursuit of perfection, you are actually the furthest away from godliness you could possibly be. You see, the cure for worldliness... And the path to godliness is in fact to become more aware of our humanity. It is to live in an awareness of your creatureliness. And so your utter dependence on God. The worst thing you can do if you seek to be godly is to deny this aspect of your life. Because you'll end up faking it. Godliness in itself, when it is pure, is beautiful. Beautiful. Only when it's authentic, though. And it is revolting when it's rep- pretensive. To somehow act like you are worthy on your own and to try and figure that if I do this and I do this and I do this, I'll earn, I'm a good enough person, I've earned heaven, is the exact opposite of what God speaks of. And it's the exact opposite of what He offers. In Scripture, we see this as we see the doctrine of grace that God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Not so that you could make up religious practices, so that through whom you could receive the free gift of eternal life. And recognizing your own failure, then putting Christ as Lord in your life. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous. This is sounding great so far. Without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Note this, this is in 2 Timothy 3, 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. The scariest thing for a Christ follower and for the church is this. Those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. Those who put on a great show, who say the right things, who seem to have it all together, who by their own means and discipline work to check all the boxes but don't actually have the power and the Spirit of God actively alive in them. Jesus warned about these people in Matthew 22 when he spoke to a group of Sadducees. These were a group of religious elitists. They were trying to trap Jesus with their questioning, talking about what would happen in the afterlife to a woman who married seven brothers. I don't know why this became the hypothetical question, but it did. Who would that woman go with? Jesus' response to them was this. He said, you are an error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. These men had a form of godliness. They had their rituals and pious ceremonies. They made laws to things they deemed to be right and earned their way to God, but they did not actually know the power of God. This can relate to any of us who set up a system of trying to earn our way to heaven or earn God's love. Whether that's through religious ceremonies and practices like the Sadducees, or through something like karma. Our own good works, if I do this, this is somehow going to appease God. We see in Scripture that our good works on our own to God are like dirty rags. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. Godliness is about being a reflection of God's holiness. It's about being God-centered. It's not about being good. It's about relinquishing your life to be like God. There's a lot more I'd like to say on this but I don't know how many of you are signing off to be here till noon so I'm going to move forward a little bit. Humility is recognizing that I am a fallen sinner in need of God's grace. It is the poor in spirit that Jesus talked about in the beatitudes in the book of Matthew. In Luke 18, we see the, the story of Jesus talking to a rich young ruler who said he had done everything, had done all the right things, had checked all the boxes and asked, what else, almost like a rhetorical question, what else could I do to, eter- uh, to have eternal life? Essentially assuming he'd done everything. And Jesus asked him to give up all and to follow him. And this man was rich and didn't want to. And he walked away. But the key Jesus was addressing here was not the rich young man's money. Jesus didn't care about his money, but rather his heart. But this young man's heart belonged to his money, to his own wealth. He was trying to fill out his spiritual bingo card of good acts to secure his eternity in paradise. But Jesus didn't care about those things. What he cared about was what came first. Was he the most important? What to you comes before Jesus in your life? What is more important than him? That's the question he cares about. And depending on that, on that question, he could care less about the other things in your life. You can spell out whatever charitable acts you do, whatever money that you give, whether to this church or to other organizations, the time that you volunteer, the kind words that you say, the time you've poured into b- in raising good kids and teaching them good morals and living by standards, And if this offends you, I'm sorry, but God doesn't care about that. He really doesn't. If he's not first, those things don't matter. That's simply a system to try and earn your way. When God says, I have the way, I have that gift available to you. Godliness is revering and putting Christ first. And in that, it changes our behavior. Our behavior is a byproduct of a relationship with him. Very quickly, I want to talk about what the byproducts of a a godly life are. Godliness in your life does the following. Really quickly as I just take three minutes here. It builds in us a capacity to truly receive and give love. The nature of deep love is its capacity to love what is unlovely, even unlovable. Deep love, what the Bible calls agape love, transcends our inborn tendencies of attraction or revulsion. It subverts ingrained prejudices. It trumps our niggling irritations. It annuls our sticky and pricky conditions. Romans 5.8 says this, But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were the worst while we were the most hideous, the most ugly, the worst in our lives, God loved you. In the midst of your sin, in the midst of your addiction, in the midst of your failure, God loved you then. That's an example for us. Real love loves us, not just as we are, but so that we can become what we are meant to be. This is godliness. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. In a couple of weeks we're going to be talking about love, but you're incapable of doing that without Him. Godliness builds in us a capacity to give and receive love. Second thing, godliness fulfills the deep longing in us to be more like Jesus. 1 Peter 1 16, be holy because I am holy. The word sanctification is a theological term that means uh, making godly, godless people godly. When you receive Jesus in your life instantaneously, you become saved, you receive salvation. If you say a prayer in your life and invite Jesus in, you are saved and you are promised eternity with him. But there's more to the story than that and we continue to move forward in our life through the process of sanctification every day becoming more like Jesus. Perseverance, which we spoke about last week, has a work it sets out to do and we must let it do its work. Its goal is to mature us. It is to complete us. It is to get us to the place where nothing is missing in our spiritual health. It is to make us godly. Thirdly, godliness brings unity with Christ and with his followers. Because if you are like Jesus, you will desire what he desires and be drawn to the things his heart wants. Philippians 2, 1-2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any calming sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion that make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind... Fittingly, following godliness over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about mutual affection and then love. because when we live a godly life, we'll be drawn to have unity and love with Christ and his followers. And finally, godliness draws us to invest into things that ma- into the things that matter, into eternity. First, Timothy four, seven and nine: Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good. People who exercise, good on you. Some of you are like, "You don't. It's a fair comment. There's, there's goodness with physical exercise. There's benefits that come from that. but it's limited. Paul here doesn't say don't physically train your body. He says it's good, but training for godliness is better. And it promises benefits in this life and in the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying and should, and everyone should accept it. If you spend more time taking care of your physical body than you do your spiritual soul, your balance is out of whack. Think of the amount of time that you spend on your physical body, feeding it, training it, exercising it. Do you exercise your soul with the same amount of time and diligence? If you don't, your priorities are out of whack. This is not me saying, give up exercising. Because that's not what Paul's saying. But you need to invest into the things that matter. How much time do you invest into becoming godly? Not becoming good by other standards. Not using someone even in this church or a pastor or someone that you revere or think is a good man or a good woman. Not using that as your benchmark. Not caring about their standards or your standards. But how much do you invest into trying to understand and to reach God's standard? Because that's what godliness is. And church, that's what we're called to Often in this church, you will hear at the end of a morning message, you'll hear the opportunity to receive Jesus in your life, to receive forgiveness and healing. Salvation is the word that they use in the Bible. A Forgiveness of sin. As we say here, the leader of your life. Or as it says in the passage that we read, Lord. Because it's not just about receiving forgiveness of your sin. That's only the first step. The true life of a Christian, a a Christian, a Christ follower, is about Jesus being Lord and following Him. Because there is way more that He wants for you and way more amazing things He wants to bring into your life. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we close this morning. And perhaps this morning, something registered with you and you have yet to experience the power of, and freedom of salvation. Perhaps you serve the opinions of others. You are constantly bombarded with anxiety about trying to live up to someone else's standard and trying to earn it. And this morning I want to assure you, you don't need to live that way. The verse I mentioned earlier, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. God paid the penalty for sin so that you could receive healing and forgiveness. So I'm going to ask just as an exercise this morning. If that's you today, whether this is the first time and you've never received Jesus in your life or the truth is maybe you've made a decision for Christ but you've been all about serving others, serving your own opinions or the opinions of others, I want to pray for you today that God's going to release you from that and you're going to know the power of God. Because the power of God is available for you and is actually what you're supposed to live in every day. So as I pray, I'm going to invite, that's you, for you to raise your hand. Because I want to pray specifically for those that that's you this morning. So if you'll join me in prayer, we're just going to close our eyes, not because God doesn't hear us if our eyes are open, but it's a way of us focusing. Focusing on Him. The Holy Spirit, I pray right now, you just begin to speak to our hearts and challenge us and those those who even just internally right now that you're working on, that you'd speak clearly. Now, eyes are closed. I'm going to ask, if that's you today, I'm going to pray for those who raise their hands. I'm going to pray. That's an act of just obedience to God. I want to pray that God is going to release you and you're going to experience the power of God in your life now. So if that's you, just lift your hand now. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you in the back. Amen. Lord, I pray for those who right now, just out of obedience, God, I believe out of what you're doing in their spirit right now, have have obediently put up their hand. I pray right now for the power of God because it is the power of God for salvation. God, we need your power. And I pray right now, that you would fill them with a recognition of your closeness, that you are near. Lord, where there has been distance, that you bring that. Lord, I pray for forgiveness where there are things that need to be forgiven of. God, for our selfishness, for where we truly have been so self-centered. God, would you forgive us of our sin? Cleanse us. Make us right. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would be leader of our lives. Lord, not just in a capacity of what we feel comfortable with, not as we define it, but God, as you define it, would you empower us by your Spirit to live a life that truly is yielded to you? Today, as we go to our family, can you change the way that we talk to others? Can you change our behavior? Can you change the habits that we have that we can't break? But may that not be the focus for us, may that be the byproduct of, God, may you make yourself real. Father God, Dad, can you be close to us? Can you fill your love in these individuals right now? May they just sense your Holy Spirit on them and through them. I pray so that we can live the life we're called to, and we can truly be the impact in our world that you want us to be. Make us godly, not in our own definition, but by what you say. We thank you for that, and we thank you for the eternal life that you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name, and if you agree, say amen.